Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. Americans approaching retirement, however they plan to spend those years, have experienced some frightening economic waves recently. During the Great Recession of 2009 and the COVID-19 pandemic of the early 2020s, older workers experienced higher rates of job loss than younger ones, and many have not fully recovered. Spiking inflation and the possibility of another recession have led to a stressful economic circumstance for millions who've been thrown off course and are still struggling to envision a secure future. In today's episode, Mark Miller, a veteran journalist, author, and podcaster who is a nationally recognized expert on trends in retirement and aging, walks us through a short course of decisions we could make to improve our financial security in retirement, even if it's just a few years away. Mark, the author of the recently published book, Retirement Reboot, Common Sense Financial Strategies for Getting Back on Track, outlines the steps we need to remake a retirement plan and the critical importance of managing the risk of longevity by optimizing Social Security and Medicare benefits. He'll also talk about how to build savings, even late in the game. And he'll provide some refreshing insights and conversations with his own children, answering their questions about retirement, discovering some unexpected conclusions about the next generation's preparedness for their later years. So now let's meet our guest, Mark Miller. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ron. Great to be here. Yeah. I say welcome back because Mark was one of my first guests when I started the podcast. Right. We had a great uh, session then, and I well, I know we'll have another great one today. So <laughs> welcome back, Mark. And, Thanks um, so much. Um, so uh, we'll talk a lot more about Mark's book, uh, The Retirement Reboot. Uh, there's a lot of great information in there. Um, I just wanted to start with you, Mark, about one of the interesting things you say is that people talk about a lot of the risks of retirement planning. And one of the main premises you make is, well, there's a risk people don't recognize, which is longevity. So talk a little bit about that. Right. So the the surveys that have been done where you just ask people about what they think the biggest risk is in retirement, uh, people tend to answer with things like, you know, the risk of uh, poor health or stock market risk would be a couple of examples of things that people tend to cite. But from a kind of a quantified research standpoint with the, the researchers tell us is that longevity is the biggest thing that what they call longevity risk, namely the risk about living your money. And it's become a bigger deal in recent decades for a number of reasons. One is longevity, generally speaking, is up, which is great. It's a good thing. Although there's some footnotes to that, I think, you know, they're not up for everybody. Uh, their 10 biggest gains have been among people who are more affluent, better educated, um, people have tended to enjoy the greatest gains in longevity. But at any rate, overall longevity has generally been the upswing the last few decades. And at the same time, fewer Americans have robust sources of guaranteed lifetime income from, let's say, a traditional defined pen, defined benefit pension. So, you know, the for most of us, the main source of guaranteed income will be Social Security, which does, which is terribly important. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but it's only going to replace a certain amount of your income. So as we've shifted to more of this system of uh, the defined contribution system for saving for retirement, which most people would label as 401k plans, right. um, 
you know, I get asked this all the time, well, how do I plan to uh, manage my savings so that I can stretch them throughout my retirement? And I said, well, that's easy. You just need to supply me with one number, which is how long will you live? (laughs) Right, right. So, you know, that illustrates the problem. And uh, that's not the only problem. The other problem with, with the 401k system is that it only reaches about half of workers in the first place. And generally speaking, you know, this is an experiment we've running now since the 1980s, this shift from defined benefit to defined contribution. And what we see is that all the money is being accumulated in sort of the top um, 20% of households, almost Hmm. all of it. I mean, when you look at it broken up by quintiles, as soon as you get below those top two quintiles, what you see is that um, the amounts saved are much smaller and or negligent or not existent. And certainly not significant enough to, you know, be a meaningful source of income throughout retirement. Right. So those are the reasons why, you know, longevity risk is such a big deal. Right. Yeah, it's it's hard to know. I mean, I guess there are some longevity projection calculators that uh, you've, you've talked about, but, uh, you know, they, uh, they're, they're not that good, questionable. But, and I mean, a, a good one is, a, I think it's a good illustration to get it just because it's going to be help people be thoughtful and think through think through these issues uh the one that i mentioned in the book that i particularly like is called uh, the longevity illustrator calculator mm-hmm. which is created by the american academy of actuaries and it's a very simple you know set of inputs you know your age your gender do you smoke or not your own general assessment of health and it kind of spits back a, a kind of a range of possible outcomes that for some people will be eye openers because the people tend to underestimate their own lo- possible longevity. Mm-hmm. I think people tend to fixate on what they read or hear are the averages. So the average male lives to age 80, you know, whatever it is, 83, I forget. Um, without stopping to think about that, that's just the average. Right. So many will well outlive that. Women tend to outlive that. Um, and for married couples, uh, it's quite likely that one spouse will outlive you know, the mortality averages. So those are the sorts of planning considerations that need to come into play. But anyway, that illustrator is at at, at uh, longevityillustrator.org. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of uh, people can underestimate. I was on a, a webinar yesterday uh, with, I was on a, it was about caregiving and uh, they had, uh, it was a, a lot about, you know, long-term care and how do people, you know, plan for caregiving uh, and the, the call-in people, there were about half a dozen call-in people from around the country. And I think the the youngest person on the call was in their high 80s, you know, and there were some, you know, there was a couple in their 90s. So, yeah, I think that uh, it, it's still, uh, it, it is, it's it's a bonus, but it's a concern as well. So, mm-hmm. um, so let's, let's dive into some of the themes of your book. Um Retirement Reboot, Common Sense, Financial Strategies for Getting Back on Track. Uh, it's a six-part series, and, and I, you know, it's, it's I, I have listened to a bunch of them on, of your reboot casts on your website. We'll talk about that more later so people know where to find the outline of some of these chapters. But so first, uh, just in the title, Getting Back on Track. So uh, I assume then the, that uh, a lot of people are on track for a number of reasons. And uh, what, so what are some of those reasons? I mean, I think part of it is people don't plan very well, but um is is that your sense that a lot of people are not on track in the first place yeah you know going back to what i said about retirement savings if if you just start with a really kind of wide view of this 
um, you know, most people receive Social Security in retirement. Social mm -hmm. Security, on average, is going to replace 40% of your pre-retirement income. It's a little higher for low-income households, and it's a little lower than that for high-income households. Um, but that's generally the, re the replacement figure. Now, from my perspective, the goal line, the goal that we're trying to reach in terms of a retirement plan is maintaining your standard of living in retirement. It's really that simple. Um, you know, if there are bonuses such as the, you know, the ability to spend money on travel or spoil your grandchildren, that's, you know, that's great too. And you can plan in, plan that into it. But the real question is, can you, you know, meet your basic living expenses in, in retirement and hopefully have something left over? Now, kind of the rule of thumb that you hear from financial planners is that most of us need to replace 70% of our pre-retirement income. Some mm -hmm. would even say higher. And that's a very, very crude rule of thumb. It's not really the number, but as a starting point, it's not a bad place to, to consider that there's this gap for many people from the 40% that Social Security replace. Uh, you know, how do we close that gap to 70? Now, what we know is, as I said, is that you know retirement saving has worked out. The, the 401k system has worked really well for affluent households and for people who have access to them. And it's done next to nothing for for everybody else. So depending whose numbers you look at, you know, at least half, maybe two thirds of near retirement households, that, which we define as those within ten years of retirement, you know, have an issue that they need to to sort out. And you know, one of the things I'm at pains to do in the book is to say, well, you know, when we consider why why do we have that situation for so many households, I'm at pains to say, let's not blame the victim here. Mm -hmm. You know, first off, only half of households have access to a 401k. If you're getting near retirement now, you have lived and worked through four major economic downturns during your working years, two of which were severe crisis level events, the financial crisis and Great Recession that occurred in 2009, 2010, and really stretched out for many of us throughout the, the rest of that next decade, was really a signature, you know, kind of economic cataclysmic event for millions of people. You know, I think we have short memories in this country. We tend to think of things like that as sort of having receded into the distant past, but it's not really how it works from an economic standpoint. If you lost your job, lost your home, lost your retirement savings in the Great Recession, you may have gotten back on track sometime over the following years in terms of, you know, finding a new job. But the losses that you incurred during that period are are permanent in the sense that it's very difficult to make those things up. People mm -hmm. that go back to work after a long layoff typically go back at a lower wage. You know, the, the losses in terms of assets kind of it's very hard to catch up with that. They they tend to compound out over the, the following years. So, you know, there's any number of reasons, I think, why uh, we find ourselves in this situation. And people have faced a lot of financial pressures, you know, whether it's dealing with uh, student debt, the cost of sending kids to college, the escalating costs of housing and healthcare. So when we ask the question, why aren't more people saving? You know, I think the answer simply is that the money isn't available. Now, people who sort of focus on behavioral economics like to say that, oh, there's all these sort of psychological reasons people don't do it. People don't want to think about their future selves people who procrastinate, you know, maybe all that may be true to an extent. Mm -hmm. But but from where I'm sitting, if the dollars aren't available, you can't save them. And not only that, there may be things you should be using those dollars for 
first before you sock them away in an IRA account. You know, if you're carrying, you know, high interest rate credit card debt, for example, you know, the first available dollar ought to go to reducing that debt, not into a 401k account. So lots of reasons, you know, why I felt there was an opportunity to do a book for that part of the near retirement population. You know, I, I write about both public policy and kind of the personal finance side mm-hmm. of retirement. Now, on the public policy side, there's this endless debate about, you know, the retirement crisis, which is broadly speaking, the topic we're talking about here. Right. And what we can do about those things on the public policy side. And I have thoughts about that, which we can get into later if you want to. And I deal with them in the book. But it really has struck me over the years uh, that, you know, the personal finance journalism uh, field has things exactly upside down. Mm. You know, most personal finance journalism is written for and targets the people who need the help least. You know, the people who actually have savings and are trying to figure out how to, you know, get the edge on their investment portfolio or the latest trick that they can pull on to save on taxes or, you know, on and on. It's an endless right. menu. Yeah. Um, and we don't focus so much on, and, and a lot of those people, by the way, have financial planners too who can help them out. So, but so I, I felt like, well, and I, there are reasons for that that, that probably you read, listeners aren't that can be that interested in the inside baseball of how journalism works. But <laughs> uh, but I thought there was an opportunity to do a book that maybe could lay out some practical steps for people to take who find themselves in this situation. And so that's what I set out to do. Yeah. Yeah, the terrific points. Um, yeah, I think that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that last thing too about you know the people really need it most are the ones we're not targeting. Um, now, just getting back to Social Security for a second. Mm-hmm. Granted that it does not um, uh, cover the needs for most people fully for, for their retirement, uh, and yet it is an important component, as you pointed out. And one of the most important things is about you know, the timing of it and how you do it. Um, and also there's there's a lot of, you know, constant chatter about, you know, cutting it and, and what mm-hmm. the impact would be. So um, we may have to take and carry this over to the other side of the break, but let's start on, so what what are your, what's your sense about all this, the arguments about um, what happens if social security is cut? Uh, I think you, you've made a good point about, it. it's not about going bankrupt. That's not really the right terminology, mm-hmm. but but what what are the risks of, 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 of the, the social security system now in terms of, you know, its solvency. Right. Well, and I want to just say first that I definitely would concur that there's nothing more important uh, in the kind of the retirement landscape of the United States than social security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I write probably three quarters of my work in journalism is about those two things because there are two universal social insurance programs. They impact everybody. Uh, so I couldn't agree more that these are, terribly important topics, Social Security and Medicare. And so back to your question on Social Security. So, you know, Social Security is on track right now. You know, the finances of Social Security work this way. We talk about the Social Security Trust Fund, or actually, technically, it's two trust funds. It's the disability and the retirement funds, but they often get lumped together and Mm -hmm. talked about as one, which is fine. Um, And you could think about these trust funds as though they were a checking account. So the payroll taxes come into the checking account and then the checking account is used to pay out the benefits. That's really what a trust fund is. And um, <laughs> while the money's sitting in there, it also gets invested in very conservative uh, treasury notes. 
to earn some return. So the issue that Social Security has right now is that over the last several decades, Social Security, the, the checking account's been running huge surpluses, uh, and it, it built up reserves of about $3 trillion. And those reserves are now being drained for, for two primary reasons. One is the accelerating pace of claims uh, by retirees uh, as the country ages. And the other is we've had a sharp decline in uh, birth rates in the United States. So there are fewer workers coming into the system to pay into it than there used to be. So that mismatch is what we're dealing with. And what the trustees have been telling us is that we're on track for that checking account to be empty in 2035. And th that forecast fluctuates a little bit from year to year, but not a lot. Uh, a year ago, it was 2034. Now it's 2035. It could drop back down. Um, and so if we reach the point where the checking account's empty, current revenue coming in from the payroll tax is enough to cover roughly 80% of the schedule or promised benefits. So it implies a 20% across the board cut in Social Security benefits, which would be catastrophic for current retirees and for future retirees. That's the most kind of primary issue that needs to be dealt with. And yeah. you can deal with it one of two ways. You can either raise taxes, you can cut benefits, you can do some, or a third way is you can do some combination of the two. Right, Mark, let's just uh, uh, hold that thought. Okay. Um, we're gonna take a quick break, uh, but uh, don't go anywhere folks. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking much more with Mark Miller, the author of Retirement Reboot, Common Sense Financial Strategies for Getting Back on Track. So uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be back very shortly. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. You are listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Mark Miller, a veteran journalist, author, and podcaster who's a nationally recognized expert in trends and retirement and aging. Now, before the break, uh, we were talking about Social Security, and Mark was uh, mentioning, you know, the, the conundrum we're in now about um, the trust fund, you know, theoretically being depleted by 2035 and a couple of different solutions to that. So let's just go back to that, Mark, and mentioning sure. that we can raise taxes or... Or right. Yeah. So if you look at where sort of the two political parties are on this, it's reasonably clear at this point. You know, it, it, there was a lot of coverage on this topic right after President Biden's State of the Union address in February, where, you know, he kind of laid down the gauntlet on this and 
there was a lot of back and forth about cutting Social Security and Medicare between the political parties. Um, you know, the Democrats are pretty united on what they want to do. Basically, what they want to do is raise taxes on the wealthy and and also expand benefits modestly. So it's a two-part two punch there. One is you raise revenue to close that gap we were discussing, and then you raise enough to also expand benefits. Uh, the Republicans, um, you can't really generalize where they're at on this point. And at this point, there's a the kind of the populist Trump wing basically says, uh, don't touch Social Security, don't touch Medicare, but they're not proposing what they actually want to do mm -hmm. to deal with, with the solvency problem. So it's not really a coherent position. The sort of the more uh, Tea Party conservative wing, particularly in the House of Representatives, has a very well-articulated uh, plan that they've been uh, pushing for a number of years now. So it's it's no mystery as to what they want to do. They would cut benefits by raising the full retirement age further. And that is a benefit cut that translates over time to about a 6% cut in benefits so for, for every 12 months of delay or of, of extension of the full retirement age. That's a lot of, that may sound like a lot of jargon. We can unpack it if you want to, but it's a benefit cut. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the other thing that they want to do, which I think is significant, is they want to refocus Social Security so that it is mainly a program for low-income people. They're very upfront about this. They say that Social Security is not needed for middle-income and affluent households, which I vehemently disagree with. I think that's mm -hmm. just wrong, wrong, wrong. But that it's a dangerous position also because it fundamentally moves Social Security away from what it is, which is an earned benefit program, to one that is essentially kind of a means-tested or welfare program. We don't award Social Security benefits based on need. We base it on what you've earned. So the benefit is determined by, number one, having paid into the system with your payroll taxes, but you're actually your benefit amount is determined by your wage history. So Social Security takes 35, your 35 highest years of wages and punches it through a formula that translates into a a wage adjusted adjusted for wage inflation uh, benefit the amount that has nothing to do with your your need for the benefit when you claim it's just this is what you've earned. So uh, th those are the two approaches. Now, you know, I used to think that Congress would come together and solve the the problem, the, the you know the, the exhaust the trust fund problem, you know, well ahead of twenty thirty five. But given the way politics have evolved. In this country over the last five years, I'm not so sure anymore uh, that they'll be able to come together around a solution. So then the question becomes, you know, what happens if we get right up against that deadline? Mm -hmm. The answer is, I think that uh, you would have an emergency infusion of new revenue to avert the cuts, cuts. And that would happen either through taxes or some form of borrowing, perhaps. Um, because the closer you get to 2035, you really can't solve the problem through cuts. Mathematically speaking, you can't get it done because it takes much more time for those changes to wash through the system. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it would be unfortunate to get to that because I think the longer we wait, it just contributes to the public worry about the future of the program. You know, I think there's some evidence that it leads some to some bad decisions on claiming strategies with people saying, well, I better get my money while I can, that sort of mm -hmm. thing, um, which is we probably will get to this, but that's not an optimal uh, strategy for optimizing your strategy, your social security benefit. So, right. you know, unfortunate that that's the way it's evolving. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I just am a strong proponent of the inject new revenue into the program approach. The 
the standard line about this is, well, we can't afford, these programs are unaffordable. Uh, we can't, where, is it, we, where are we going to find the money to put into Social Security? This is, to me, nonsensical. Um, it's not a question of money. It's a question of values. So if I lay out the case that two-thirds of the country has been left behind by the 401k system and needs needs more in the way of retirement income, um, you know, we can certainly find the money to do that. We're a wealthy country. Social Security is like about 5% of gross domestic product. It's going to peak at 6% with the aging of the, the baby boom wave and then come back down to about 5 And, you know, when we need to find money in this country to do things, we find it. When we need mm -hmm. money for COVID emergency relief, I don't remember anybody asking where are we going to find the money. We find it. Mm -hmm. uh, when we needed to make changes to um, security after 9-11, we find the money. Uh, it's only on topics like this where it's all about hand-wringing about where the money's going to come from. So mm -hmm. we know where we can find the money. There's lots of places to go get it. I can get into, the, into them if you like, but th that's what this is about. And so I actually think kind of a, a broad rethink of of Social Security's role would be terrific. You know, the expansion programs, uh, proposals that have been made, I actually don't think go far enough. I mean, mm -hmm. I really think that what we should do is have Social Security uh, replace 60% or, or so of free retirement income, certainly for middle class and lower income households, maybe mm -hmm. less so for on the affluent end. And you know we could find ways to do that if we decided we wanted to make Social Security the pension program, uh, with fewer and fewer people getting a traditional pension, which is a guaranteed lifetime payment. Mm -hmm. You know this could be very beneficial. Instead, we're constantly fiddling around the edges here. Well, how do we create programs in the states uh, to have like a public option auto IRA for low income workers, which is you know a, you know a nice idea, but it's not a it's not a game changer. This um, Secure 2.0 legislation that was just recently passed into law, you know, more marginal stuff. A lot of it benefits um, the wealthy. You know, extending required minimum distribution ages to 75 helps nobody except the most affluent. Um, there are a few things in that bill that I think, you know, marginally are good um, for lower income people, but they are take a long, long time to, to kind of wash through the system. And they don't produce anything like the dramatic impact that you could have by um, <clears throat> reimagining Social Security to do more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, again, excellent points. I think that um, you know. And so I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm still working, but I'm I uh, file for Social Security, so I'm uh, getting Social Security as well. And um, it seems to me that I guess first the thing I was hardened uh, uh, initially, you know, when you people say, "Well, do you pay taxes on your Social Security?" and the answer is yes. But on, on the other hand, the, the, that revenue goes back in the Social Security trust fund, so it doesn't mm -hmm. go into general revenue. So I was like, "Okay, right. well, that's good. It goes back into mm -hmm. the fund." Number one, number two, I think, and, and not uh, everybody's not everybody pays taxes on their benefit. It's worth mentioning, but, you know, it's it's really targets more you know people with higher ordinary income. Right, right. Um, Which, it, in your case, is because you're still working and so on. Yeah. yeah. Um, but going back to your initial thing about longevity, if if you we're living longer, um, if you create a base for people to, you know, be productive and secure and stable during those years, I think you'll get a, the return on investment is is high on that. You know, in terms of not having them worry about you know not spending. Any, any money if you if you provide a base of support 
I think that'll come back, you know, in, well, in a societal it, way. In a societal way, yes, I think you're right. Not so much so for the trust fund. Um, you know, taxes on benefits are a relatively trivial revenue source in the trust fund. So it doesn't solve the trust fund issues. But it, it, the question of working, there's lots of benefits to working longer, both societally and for the individual. I, I get into this in the book in some detail. You know, I think it's a it's a highly personal choice. It's not the right prescription for everybody. I think people who have worked in more, you know, physically demanding jobs are going to have trouble right. extending their working years, you know, into their late 60s and 70s, for example. And, and the other thing about this is that, you know, the older we get, um, time becomes that much more valuable to us. And so kind of being thoughtful about how you want to use your time, I think is, you know, important. So I don't say that working longer is a universal prescription, but one of the key chapters illustrates the critical importance of timing of retirement and how big of an impact, you know, when you retire can have yeah. on your, your security and retirement. So I'm illustrating that as an option, one of the main options um, for improving outcomes, if it's, if it's a, a path that's available to you. And then I've got another chapter that just looks at managing your career later in life. So I think it's an important topic, but it's just one of the many, you know, I basically have sort of six key chapters in the book that outline what I call levers you can pull to improve right. outcomes. And they're not, none of them are, number one, they're not gimmicks. Number two, they're not necessarily easy to do, but they are achievable. And they're all worth, not all of them will be right for everybody, but they're all worth considering, I think, for people who find themselves approaching retirement without a lot of money saved. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's just finish up uh, on Social Security, because you do mention that that there are some decisions you can make irrespective of the you know the global systems affected social security about when you file and how you file and uh um you know do you file you know there, there, this comes up a lot do you file sooner or later what are the mm -hmm. implications of, of when it is you decide to file right simply put most people should be claiming later than they are that's the headline um 80 of people have claimed by their full retirement age and just to just to be clear what we're talking about here so full retirement age is a kind of a funny jargony phrase um you might think it means the maximum amount you're going to get but no it means the age at which you're qualified to receive a hundred percent of the benefit you've earned through your working years right now it's about 66 years old and change for anybody born after 1960 1960 and later it's 67. And that's because the age has been gradually pushed up as a result of the reforms that were enacted in 1983 to the program. It went from 65 to 67 over a long period of time. So you can claim as early as 62, and you can wait as late as 70 to claim. And the earlier you claim, you're going to have a, an early uh, a claiming reduction if, if you file before your full retirement age. And if you claim after it, you get these delayed retirement credits. And the delayed credits amount to about an 8% annual bump in your benefit amount. And the reductions uh, are a little less on the order of 6.8% for every 12 months before your full retirement age. So uh, like I say, 80% of us claim by our full retirement age, uh, very small percentage, maybe 15% claim at the, the, the latest age is that you would wait, wait until 70 to file. Um, there has been some improvement in the numbers of the percentages of people who are claiming at the earliest age. That's dropped 
from like 60% is in the in the mid 1990s i think to about 30% now so it's a dramatic decline so people are at least getting the messages that they should delay somewhat but for most people a del delaying longer would be a good thing especially for married couples so th that's the basic message you know the the challenge here is um how do you fund that delay and i mean fund from the standpoint of meet your living expenses Mm -hmm. So some people can do it by drawing on savings while they wait, which can, can be a smart strategy. Some are going to do it by uh, working longer. Uh, so, you know, there's always the question of how you fund a delay. The people who are wise probably to claim earlier are those who, for whatever reason, uh, don't have an expectation of great longevity. Right. And for married couples, uh, it's good to have a coordinated strategy. It shouldn't be done in isolation. Mm -hmm. So, the higher earner, higher earning spouse, if the higher earning spouse delays uh, the longest, that's that's beneficial because that, that that person is bringing in the, the maximized monthly benefit to the household. Right. Now, the other piece um, that you've talked about a lot, of course, is Medicare. Uh -huh. uh, again, we'll probably uh, run through the break with this topic. But uh, again, let's just look uh, at some of the general observations you have about Medicare. And then I mm -hmm. you had a... Um, a good a piece recently about some of the, the changes that are, uh, that are going to come into uh, have been coming in 2023. So first of all, um, you know, let's let's you've, you've had some interesting observations about just comparing traditional Medicare and you know the Medicare Advantage. Well, Me Medicare has been massively privatized over the last couple of decades. People talk about it as government, quote unquote, government health care. And, you know, it is, but, and it's not, um, you know, you can either be in traditional fee for service Medicare, or you can be in this managed care alternative called Medicare Advantage. Um, and those are, it's a critical choice that people need to pay a lot of attention to at the point of initial enrollment in Medicare uh, for reasons that I get into in the chapter. And, and I say in the chapter that you know, I'm a believer in traditional Medicare wherever possible. Mm -hmm. You know, I think gold, traditional Medicare to me is the gold standard of health insurance in the United States. Uh, uh, traditional Medicare paired with a Medigap supplemental policy and a Part D drug plan, that's the most rock solid coverage you can get. Now, you're going to pay more in premiums on the front end because you're going to be paying a Medigap and a Part D uh, drug premium. But once you've done that, most of your, that's pretty much it. Nearly everything is going to be covered uh, that, that Medicare is going to cover. Um, and you're going to have the greatest flexibility in your choice of health care providers, uh, where in your Medicare Advantage, you're, you'd be subject to more, you know, the, the so-called narrow network approach of uh, HMOs and PPOs. And so, you know, if some of this is financial and some of it is quality of life, you know, there's nothing more important than your health, and particularly as we get older. And let's face it, you know, it's when we're older that we encounter more serious health issues. So, you know, I, I'm laying out the case here for people to give a hard think to being in traditional Medicare when they first sign up and sticking with it. Right. Okay. So we're going to talk about some of the changes uh, that have come up in the last uh, uh, few months and look forward to this year. But um, uh, we're going to, before we do that, uh, we're going to take another quick break. Uh, so folks, but we'll be back with much more in our last segment with Mark Miller, the author of Retirement Reboot, 
common sense financial strategies for getting back on track. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. You are listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Mark Miller, veteran journalist, author and podcaster, a nationally recognized expert on retirement and aging. Before the break, uh, Mark was talking about uh, Medicare, and I asked him, uh, you know, what are some of the changes that have, uh, we should expect this year for, for various reasons, so, you know, change in rules uh, as well as legislation. So it does have something to quickly touch on those. Sure. Um, there's sort of a collection of things that take effect this year that, you know, I don't think any one of them are uh, game changers, but, you know, taken together are, I think, interesting. One is uh, a streamlining of the um, process for enrolling in Medicare when you enroll late. And people do, unfortunately, sometimes enroll later than, than they should. Um, and this, this first change uh, streamlines the process for enrolling when you enroll late. It used to be that uh, if you didn't enroll on time, you had to wait for a general enrollment period that ran from January through March, and that could expose you to a long wait depending on the time of year that you enrolled. And so, starting this year, you know, whenever you enroll, you're you're going to be covered during the first uh, month following your enrollment. So it sort of streamlines that process. Um, another one that got a lot of headlines and is important is the cap on the cost of Medicare. Uh, sorry, excuse me, is the cap on the cost of insulin for people enrolled in Medicare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, insulin costs have been a very big deal. And starting this year, the maximum you can be charged uh, in Medicare Part D is $35 a month. Uh, another change this year is that uh, vaccine coverage is, is provided. Uh, adult vaccines are covered for free under Part D. Uh, this is going to be important for some of the more expensive uh, vaccines out there, such as the one for shingles. Um, and then kind of a t- more of a technical change that kicks in that uh, involves rebates that pharmaceutical companies have to start paying back to Medicare if they boost prices at a rate that's higher than uh, the general inflation rate. So it's you know an incentive to get drug companies to start um, moderating uh, price hikes on, on drugs. So there's a number of things that were included in the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year that kick in 
over the next few years. But uh, this last one I was just mentioning and the insulin provision uh, became effective this year. Right. And on the talk about, you know, Medicare having the ability now to negotiate drug prices, but th- those those measures really kick in over the next few years, right? They're not immediate. Yeah, they're not immediate. That They started in 2025, and even there, it's a limited list of drugs. So that's a kind of a longer-term uh, proposition. Right, right. So let's shift back now to, you know, our segment earlier about well, Social Security, about, you know, how we save for retirement in terms of um, um, our assets and, and income. So let's talk a little bit about other kinds of ways that you talk about how to build savings. And you've got a, a pretty good streamlined approach to this? Well, I'm thinking here about a reader who hasn't saved earlier and might be getting close to retirement, maybe has the opportunity to do it now. Uh, Let's say kids are out of the house, college costs have been dealt with. You know, it could be a number of reasons. People tend to be in their higher earning years. Uh, It could be a number of reasons that it is possible to save. But, you know, I think one of the problems with retirement savings is an intimidation factor. You know, it's not not that many of us are investment experts. Um, not that many of us are, I think, interested in becoming investment experts. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there is a fear factor of of how to deal with this. So, you know, I, one bit of good news of, in the retirement landscape over the last couple of decades has been the advent of, you know, more simple, low cost ways to invest in the market. Uh, at re- with great diversification and relatively, you know, relatively lower risk, um, and that is using um, the, the the approach of just using passive index funds. You know, invest in a fund that just buys the entire stock market fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And so, what I'm basically doing is laying out a simple approach here. It says, look, if you're able to save, do it in these low cost, uh, passive, total stock market vehicles. Uh, pay careful attention to your costs because fees are the enemy here. Uh, you know, it's very possible to invest in products that carry very low, uh, you know, expenses these days. And when you compound costs out over a couple of decades, you start to see how big of a deal it is, you know, that how much of the money you keep in your pocket uh, versus, you know, what's staying in the, the pocket of the investment company. You know, I think there's a tendency to think when you look at the fees on a, investment product, let's say it says, you know, we're going to charge, we're only going to charge you 1% a year. It doesn't sound like much, but when you start doing the math and see that that's going to be charged to your account annually, year after year after year, and as your account grows, those fees get bigger, you start to see that it can, it's, it, you know, can really be determinative in terms of, you know, your ability to succeed building savings. So, you know, it's a very straightforward look, kind of just do it this way, folks. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the way to do it if you're getting a late start. Keep it simple. By all means, keep it low cost. Right, right. And then uh, on the the other side of that, of course, is a lot of discussion about the withdrawal rate. You know, and, and some discussion, some differences about or changes in terms of how much you know makes sense in terms of with, withdrawal. You know, on a yearly basis. Yeah, there's a lot of research out there on that, you know, with the so-called safe withdrawal rate. What, what can you afford to withdraw in a way that, and safe means not exhausting your resources before you mm-hmm. die. And so it's really those calculations are done using mortality averages. So how meaningful are they? Yeah, I'm not sure. Current thinking seems to be, you know, somewhere a little bit below 
four percent a year. So mm-hmm. that gives you an idea of the kinds of um, portfolios you need to build in order for retirement savings to be a meaningful part of your retirement income. Right, right. Um, uh, I, I did want to get to, uh, I thought uh, um, your discussion with your kids uh, was about retirement. What questions they had was was really interesting. And um, uh, some of the questions they had, maybe you could just uh, mention some of the questions they had and, and how you responded to it and what, what your reaction was to the questions. I mean, my big takeaway, this was for a podcast I did uh, where I answered my kids and my niece's questions about retirement. Yeah, they really are paying attention. I think, you know, this idea that younger people aren't interested in this. I think I think they are. I think they have the general idea that you know, maybe Social Security is not going to be, uh, you know, what it has been for previous generations. Uh, and they'd be right about that because, you know, they're, they're going to have a higher retirement age of at least 67, you know, maybe higher. Uh, which means that they're going to take away less from the program. So they are thinking about about saving. You know, questions had to do with things like um, where to prioritize retirement saving as compared with other things. And I basically say, you know, it's not necessarily, unfortunately, the first thing you should be thinking about. And I think if you're carrying uh, high-cost student debt or um, high-cost credit card debt, and if you haven't built up some emergency savings, you know, that ought to be done first. Um, you know, the, the sort of rule of thumb is, especially for younger people, have three to six months of, of expenses socked away in a readily available liquid savings account. And that's important because it can help you avoid going into debt when emergency needs come up. And you want to stay out of debt. You don't want to be paying a lot of interest costs. So, you know, that was one area. I got a question um, about environmental, social and governance investing uh, from mm-hmm. my highly idealistic, uh, politically oriented niece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I think there's lots of things that, you know, are on their minds that I got questions about, you know, should they be worried about social security and, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that I'm not, I think one of the articles maybe you referred me to was, but the, you know, an interesting, uh, you know, optimistic thing is that, yeah, they are thinking about retirement and that in fact, uh, Millennials, uh, from what I read, seven uh, percent of, men, of millennials contributed seven percent or more to their four hundred one ks last year, which is uh, uh, a lot more than we baby boomers did, which we saved an, an average of three percent or less, you know, for our four hundred one ks. So, yeah, the uh, I, I mean, I, ho- I hope that survey is correct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'd be yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, um, so any uh, additional thoughts before we leave, uh, you know, you have mentioned things about, you know, career choices and deciding mm-hmm. when to retire as, as, you know, um, uh, part of the, part of your equations. Well, I'll just mention one other thing, which is another, I think, bit of good news, uh, on the retirement landscape in the last couple of decades is sort of, I'll call it the small D democratization of retirement advice or, or mm-hmm. planning help. You know, it used to be that this was just the province of the wealthy and you know, kind of went by, you know, wealth management was the the, the name for it. But we've seen the advent of much lower cost, uh, good, solid advice solutions that are unbiased. You know, you want, I have a chapter on how to get it, how to hire a plan or how to get advice. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, you know, for, for, for even for the households we're talking about, which are not those that have big investment portfolios, you know, building a plan for retirement and getting a little professional help with it can definitely pay off. And it can be done these days 
you know, relatively inexpensively. You can you can hire a a fee only registered investment advisor who is a fiduciary advisor. He said underscore boldface mm-hmm. fiduciary advisor. You want somebody who is acting as a fiduciary in all cases on your behalf. Hire such a person to do a one time plan for you. Uh, you know, give you sort of a checkup on where you're going. Uh, there are online services that can be helpful. So, you know, I, I think for those of us who are, you know, not necessarily expert in some of these areas, getting some help can really be a great thing. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've covered a bit in the past is just that, you know, how do people think about their housing as they get older? I think that a lot of people, you know, they, they want to age in place, but in some cases you've got to transition somehow and you've got to think about, you know, your houses, uh, you know, it's, it's a home, but it's it's an asset. And uh, mm-hmm. so, how, how does how does that fit into your uh, your planning? Well, I have a book. I mean, I have a chapter in the book about home equity mm-hmm. and how to think about it in a retirement plan, which I think you have to do when you're talking about a middle income um, reader, where the home is probably the biggest source of of saving. You know, with quote marks around it, right? Uh, that they have. You know, most. Older Americans are homeowners and they have some equity built up in the home. But as you say, it's not the same, it's not a liquid asset in the way that, you know, a bank account is because it's wrapped up in A, the need for shelter and B, lifestyle considerations. um, Where do you want to live, et cetera, et cetera. So I walk through in that chapter different options to consider everything from downsizing and moving to something less expensive. and I actually walked through the, some, for instance, examples on how big a deal that can be, um, sometimes involving a, a shift of location. But, you know, as you say, the surveys tell us ad nauseum over and over and over and over again, people want to age in place. And, you know, I take that survey result with a grain of salt because I don't think mm-hmm. people really have thought through what it means. Um I, I get it. I guess I would say I want to age in place too, but I don't know if it's the right move for me just yet. Um, and I don't think we have as a country have thought through the implications of, uh, you know, a country that all we're all saying we want to stay right where we are when, you know, first off, communities aren't prepared to provide the kinds of services we're going to need if we're all living in, you know, suburban single family dwellings or, or multi dwelling walk-ups for that matter. Right. Um, you know, housing stock isn't really ready for it. You know, most most houses aren't, you know, really equipped for people to age in place and get to a very advanced age. As we haven't figured out how to provide the appropriate level of social and healthcare supports, um, right. even basic things like transportation in the community. So, you know, I can frame that as a problem. I can also discuss it as an opportunity for communities to get yeah. on the ball and start thinking about innovative solutions that can be opportunities to create businesses and jobs and all kinds of things. So yeah. I, I think it's a big unaddressed uh, topic in, in most American communities. And then the final thing about home equity, I'll say is that, uh, so I, I have a section in the chapter about reverse mortgages, not because I love that solution, but um, you know, I think they can be used safely. They've been regulation of reverse mortgages has been improved over the last decade or so. Uh, it's a very complicated product. Most people aren't that interested in it because it kind of, feels like another yet another form of debt that they're taking on, which which it is. Um, so it's not my number one choice, but I I lay it out in some detail, you know, is that how they work, 
how they can be used, you know, how can they be used safely in retirement? Right. But right. I think home equity is, uh, and just, you know, the whole question of housing is terribly important. Yeah. Well, we're going to save that for another show, Mark. Uh, uh, but uh, I just so before we end, I just wanted to thank you ter- for a lot of terrific information, and I wanted to, uh, as we close, to uh, just let our guests know, um, um, our audience know where to reach you. Where mm-hmm. to, I mean, uh, how to get in touch with you? Where where to sure. find out about your stuff? Yeah, the easiest way is through my website. Then the website mm-hmm. is retirementrevised.com. And there you'll see a couple of things. One is um, an opportunity to sign up for the free uh, email newsletter that I do. I generally publish it two or three times a month, uh, sometimes with a podcast attached. And um, also at the site, you'll see a lot more detail and information about uh, Retirement Reboot, the book. Yeah, it's a terrific site. You can uh, listen to his podcast, read his articles, his blog, and so forth. And I've done it, so I I just recommend that you do it as well. And you can Thank find you. out about his books on that site as well. So, folks, uh, you can listen to Mark uh, as a podcast at voiceamerica.com. Um, you could also find it uh, on my website, rowellresources.com. Just click on the 45 forward tab. Um, and so uh, uh, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Diane Jakobowitz of, of Fitness Empowerment, who is going to be doing the first of two shows about fitness and exercise, and just more broadly what she defines as movement for life. So with that, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Rowell, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.